everybody. This is Keach Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast, and I'm here at the Van Cave with a really good longtime friend of mine, Kip Kirby. How's it going, Kip? Oh, it's so great to see you. How many years has it been? Too many. Like 30? 30 years? No, no, not 30. It's been about 27. Well, is it all right to say that I did your media training, you did, your media yes. coaching with yeah, Lone Star? And I know that you, you probably saw this podcast, the title of it, and it's Kip Kirby, a media trainer, and, you know, like a broadcast uh mogul i don't know what you want to call it <laughs> broadcast expert um and uh you for those that don't know media training is a thing that uh a lot of artists they don't all go through it but they but they should um to learn how to do interviews and how to conduct yourself and how to how to speak on television and how to uh basically how to sell records and how to sell yourself without looking like a total idiot right well and the most important <laughs> thing is how to get your message across yeah, i remember right. dolly parton one night was on david letterman i knew she was there to talk about a new ride at dollywood because i was going up with my crew from crook and chase the next okay. week yeah. they got sidetracked david went off letterman went off on a thing about peaks and and valleys oh, etc came out of a commercial break and dolly's segment was over she <sighs> never she never got to the point no and I thought, if that can happen to Dolly, it can happen to anyone. And even though I know we're going to talk a little bit further about yeah. media coaching, uh, there was an act called uh, Kieran Kane and Jamie O'Hara. Right. And I was working with Jamie O'Hara when he had a solo deal with RCA. He was used to working as a duo. So, you know, we got ready. I got my TV crew all set up. We started the interview. I asked him the first question, and he looked at me and froze. And he said, Kip? I don't think I, I, I can do this. And I said, that's all right, we'll start over. He was so uncomfortable. As we turned the cameras off to give him a break, he looked at me and he said, I guess I just need media coaching. And in that moment, my whole life changed. Ah, that's where you, okay. That's very interesting. So there was actually a moment where, like an aha moment, like an epiphany, where you went, ah, there is a niche I need to fill. There had been a number of them. I did a lot of Hollywood movie junkets and yeah. things, and I was struck by how often I would walk into a room, you know, and there might be 65 journalists, TV people, print journalists, whatever, coming through that day, and they have to do it every 10 minutes. It's exhausting. I remember when Glenn Close, I was doing an interview with her. <clears throat> it was a Mel Gibson, Glenn Close movie, Hamlet. Okay. And I was one of the earliest in for the TV interview because I was East Coast, you know, I had to get on a plane. And everything got set up. We started. I asked her the first question. She looked at me, rolled her eyes, looked over at the cameraman and said, and I'm going to have to do this all day long. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then she looked back at me because, of course, I'm thinking, oh, no, where is this going to go? She said, I am so sorry. But she said, it's just going to be a very, very long day. And I thought if there were a way to teach artists and, and musicians and anybody being interviewed how to tell your story stay on track but find fresh ways and I have specific techniques yeah. to teach you're gonna to have to give the same answers but how do you approach it what do you put into each answer how do you get your message in and yet keep it fresh not only for the interviewers but for yourself yeah yeah that I, I totally I get that I and of course when we first got our record deal in 1995 we uh, got with the label B&A Records. It was part of RCA. 
and we were sort of these new kids on the block, kind of like, you know, still wet behind the ears kind of thing, you know, like we didn't know, you know, I, of course I was in the group Canyon for five years before Lone Star formed. So I'd already been doing all that stuff, you know, radio and television and videos and big concerts and stuff like that. But the guys, uh, the rest of the guys in Lone Star, they were kind of new to it, you know, a little bit. Michael had done some stuff, but, but uh, not like the five years of Canyon school that I had been through, you know, but still I, when they pitched the idea of media training, they said, you had to take media training. And we were like, what, what's that mean? Is that like a, a sort of like working out or something? Like, to, <laughs> you know, in, in, I didn't know what it meant. And uh, they said, well, there's a, there, there's a lady that works for Crook and Chase. And she, or she used to work for Crook and Chase. I don't know if you still did. Um, but she has a school. She has, she trains artists. You go in there for two weeks, I believe it was. And you sit down. And you learn how to conduct yourself in an interview and how to just basically just all the ins and outs of going on television and talking and things like that. So we were just, we kind of rolled our eyes a little bit. I have to say at the beginning, we didn't get it. We, we just thought, we're, we're smart. We know how to talk to people. We, you know, we're, you know, we're on stage all the time. We're in front of people and all that stuff. But so much we had to learn from once we got into your class and I remember one of the first things that you did was showed us well one of the first things you did sorry was you interviewed us to kind of I think set up a before and after situation right yeah so you interviewed the first thing out of the bag you did was like you had a little video studio set up in your basement you set us all up and you said okay we're just going to do an interview right now just I'm not going to train you nothing let's just see how it goes and it was terrible. It was awful. We were talking over each other. We were uh, telling inside jokes. And we were just, it was just horrible. And we weren't smiling. We weren't, we didn't know how to, uh, the sort of pecking order of what to answer, who to answer what. And, uh, and I remember at the end of that two weeks, you, inter- you interviewed us again. And the difference was night and day. You remember that? I do. Uh, well, and you all had two lead singers at the time. We did, yeah. So John you had John Rich, and, Rich yeah. who was as talkative as they come, <laughs> and you had Richie, was, who was probably like, if I could just play and not have to say anything, it would be fine with me. Um, but I always called it media coaching yeah, media because coaching. I'm very sensitive to the concept of being trained to speak. Right. I don't ever want media training or media coaching to show. It never should. Yeah. Um, I've interviewed many many artists many celebrities stars who've had media training and it's very difficult because they stay in a fixed environment they will not go outside the box they don't know how to answer except in the ways that they've been taught and I don't care what the question is it might be hey it's an election year who you gonna vote for you don't want to say who you're gonna vote for so instead of answering it the way it's asked you take it to the arena you want it to be which might be well you know I don't think it's important who I'm going to vote for, although I know a lot of people mm-hmm. would like to know. Yeah. But what I think is important, that everybody does vote. So, yeah. hey, guys, you know, if you're listening to this and you're not registered, please go out and register yeah. so when the time comes you can vote. And if, my, if I remember my coaching properly, that was called Bridging the Gap. Am uh, yes, I right? Yes, you are. Hey, I Teach, passed the that's test. astonishing. Oh, I still pass. You are such a great teacher that I remember so many things that you taught us. Every day, every single day that we go do an interview or we go do anything like that I remember the training and I remember the techniques that you taught about 
you know, um, how to, uh, how did, well, we'll talk about this later in the podcast, but we're going to do a little media training session at the, the second half of cool. this podcast. We're going to do the first half. We're going to talk about you and how you got started and all that. And then we're going to, uh, we're going to shift gears and we're going to kind of do a little mini, if you don't mind, a little no, mini media training, yeah. uh, media coaching, uh, thing, just like some tips and tricks and things like that. Things that have helped us as Lone Star and a lot of artists in Nashville and all over. Well, one thing I'm going to say is uh, there was an act, and I don't remember who he was, but he was very well known. He had switched labels, so the label he was going to said, "We'd like with you. We'd like for you to get with Kip Kirby. Just do two media coaching refreshers." He said, "Why do I have to do that? I've done interviews my whole career," and they said, "Well, how do you feel about it?" Turned out he hated the question, "How does it feel?" And oh, that yeah. is such an ever-present question in the interview field. Yeah. And I, I try to explain to artists, I know you hate it. How does it feel? Here I go, asked again. But what it means is, you know, as an interviewer, as a fan, I'm never going to know what does it feel like to stand on that stage yeah. playing to thousands and thousands of people, you know, seeing stadiums, arenas, rooms filled yeah. with people that have come to see you. How does that feel? If an artist, uh, a musician, can say what it feels like to be on the drums, what is that moment on stage where you hit that place in the in the concert and all of a sudden it's bigger than the audience. It's you all together making those sounds and you can feel it and it's an energy. If you can create that in your answer, that's how it feels. We'll never know, but now we can share it with you. And that's and, really why you interview people, because yeah. that's what the fan, the people on the other side of the screen mm-hmm. that are watching this interview, that's what they want to know, right? They want to know yeah. what it's like to be, as an what it feels like to yeah. be that person. And as an interviewer, I always felt that my job was not to be the celebrity, although some of it comes with the territory, but I wanted to be able to create in print, on radio because I did some of that and in TV interviews I wanted to create what you all do for the audience so that they would want to go out and buy tickets and come see your concerts and yeah. be involved with your group or you as a musician right. that was my job through the interview yeah and you know I have to say uh, kudos to Dean Sams too because uh, our keyboard player Dean he every time we do an interview and 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 Dean Dean is kind of our uh, become our well he was the founder the founding member of the band he's the one that put the whole band together so he does a lot of the the talking you know he's the, kind of our spokes guy you know and he I swear every time he gives an answer I think of the training I think of like because he I think before that he was good he was good with talking and stuff like that but you trained us so well and you trained Dean so well that he has taken your coaching and turned it he could be a media coach. You know, wow. if you want to, he's so good at that. You know, he's so like things like um, that. I always remember that's hard for me to do, but easy for him creating a soundbite. Oh. Like we didn't know how to do that before. We yes. didn't know. Like, what does that mean? Within the and, time frame. Yeah. Because like, you've got to, you got to sell records. You only have like 10 seconds at like a red carpet or something like that uh-huh. to get your message across and create a soundbite. Yes. In other words, you don't, you don't finish an interview with so... And these kind of hangs out there, right? So, like, yeah. you're going to say something else, but you don't. Mm-hmm. But to wrap it up and say, it's been really great out here in Fanfare, and I would come here every year, and we really encourage the fans to come out. So, please come out and have a great time. Boom. You just packaged it up. You exactly. Know? And you know who is the master at that? The best, probably, I've ever interviewed? Kenny Rogers. Yes. Because Kenny... 
anticipated the questions ahead of time. We can talk further about sure, some yeah. of the interviews with Kenny, but um, he was a master at it because if you went in there and you asked him the first question, gee, Kenny, you know, um, you started out with the gambler. You've had so many hits. You know, now you're not on the radio very much and new artists are coming along. How does it feel not to hear yourself on country radio. He would start off with that, then he would tell you, but you know, I'm not just sitting around feeling sorry for myself. Um, for instance, I have a new book of uh, photography, and he would talk about this beautiful book of photographs that he had taken. And he'd say, and also, I have a residency now in Las Vegas, and I'm going to be out there for, you know, and he'd promote and plug so that. So he's selling his. He's, and he's going, going on? point one, it's point like two. Commercial. Because he knows you're going to ask <laughs> next, well, so what are you doing? Oh, and then what? And then how did. So he. He steers the interview, the, right? And He's then he would it. always come back around, and he would anticipate your last question would be, so who do you actually listen to now? Do you like any of the new artists? And he'd go, but you know, even though I'm not on the radio right now, some of the new artists I like, blah, blah, blah. And then he might say, if he were, and we're going to be going back in the studio fairly soon, I'm working on songs for it. Yeah. So as an interviewer, that gave me or anyone a chance to go oh and we learned all of these things we have enough questions now he's getting his message across but he's not talking too long about each point right. so in four minutes or or three minutes he gives you all of these possible avenues to explore yeah makes interviewing so much easier it really does it's like doing your job for you in a way i and mean you know, they're just taking over yeah, yeah right wow that's so great so i, I want to go to the beginning of how you got started and now where are you originally from born in dc raised in new york city manhattan oh, really yep well, i, I was uh, i think seventh grade and i ended up in what they call professional children's school up there which doesn't mean i was a professional child it means yeah. it was the school similar to the one in fame that school yeah. was a public school high school of performing arts um mine was people in my school uh when i was there they were on broadway they were doing shows i think it was bye bye birdie and peter yeah. pan but you know there were people who were in the ballet and um, so kind of like high school but you're being groomed for a larger we, career it was everybody who was already working yeah. there were models so you'd come out of class and there'd be notes tacked up so and so you have a, an audition so and so you've got a modeling shoot you know wow. whatever um i was one of the few that didn't i was in class with peggy lipton Did, what, who, what class i can't remember <laughs> i can't remember what year it would have been um let's see what year anyway peggy lipton was on uh, went on to do mod squad and mary yeah. quincy jones yeah, yeah, but yeah. there were a lot of of actors who were who who later went on to to do a lot or maybe not so much um and I always thought that I would be a celebrity. I always thought I'd be an actor, you know. Okay, right, but the yeah. problem was I couldn't sing and I couldn't dance. Um, I have no musical ability whatsoever, hence my future career. Uh, <laughs> I was taking jazz lessons and, and modern dance from the guy that played the lead shark, uh, Jet. Let's see, was it Jets and Sharks? He was the Puerto Rican lead in West Side Story. He had the headband, oh, okay, right, which yeah. I know is dating myself age-wise, but hey. And... Um, <laughs> He was great, but I just, I didn't have it. Jane Fonda was in my ballet class at the June Taylor School on wow. Broadway. These were all things I did freelance, you know, to further my career. Yeah, right. And I remember one time I did something called Grand Jetés Across the Four. Clunk, thud. And Jane looked at me and very kindly said, well... At least you have a lot of joie de vivre. And I didn't know what that meant. I went home and looked it up, and I knew then I was horrible as a dancer. Um, but I just, after I graduated, I realized that 
you know, I couldn't sing and I couldn't dance, and I was sick of living in New York. Uh, I grew up, I think it imprinted me. I'll tell people I'm from New York, even if I was born in D.C. So I eventually ended up back in D.C. for a little bit and met a couple of people, and we came to Nashville in the very early 70s, back when Music Row was two-way on 16th and right. two-way on uh-huh. 17th. And there were just a handful of studios that made yeah. all the records. Yeah, right. and everybody lived in these houses. The record studios were in little houses. You know, it was such a different world back then. And I think within the first couple of weeks of my arriving in Nashville, somehow I ended up in a studio called Quadraphonic. And the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band were recording Will the Circle Be Unbroken oh my gosh. There. You know, Kansas went on. And here's a little bitty Kip Dust- Kirby yeah, hanging like, out like a fly on the wall. Right? This is really cool. <laughs> so I got a job. Uh, you know, I got a job. It was always, almost always music clubs. There was Red Dog Saloon and Mule and Brinks. And eventually, uh, the Exit Inn had opened in the early, mid-70s. I went over there once as a waitress, but I went back as a bartender. And very quickly, they ended up putting me on the front bar. And I was really good because it was showtime. Oh, I thought, this right. is really great. So the, the shows would turn twice a night. So it might be Cheech and Chong. It might be Steve Martin. It might be, um, we had police believe it or not the three of them years it was a a listening room back when record labels put tour support behind the acts okay back then they would pay a lot of money and they would take an act they were believing in when the album was coming out or the first single was coming out and they would take them to key clubs like the palomino club or the great southeastern music hall and sort of try out their their act yep and they would invite radio and they would invite the newspapers like a showcase yeah. yeah and they were building you know speed they were building momentum in the artist's career and building fans and so I got to be there every day setting up the bar I would watch the sound check I'd go up to John Prine or Jimmy Buffett or you know and I'd say well how come the audience last night was this but tonight you know they seemed whatever so I started learning about what an artist has to do to win over a crowd you know while I was doing the front bar and um I started writing for a street rag that was called Hank Magazine, and I wrote about recording studios. I wrote about artists. Um, I did interviews. Were you interested in being a writer at that time? You know, I've always written. I've always loved words. Uh, when I was in New York, I ended up getting a writing award in high school You know, for an interview I did with a famous New York Times reporter. But I don't think I realized that would be it because I always thought that it would be something, you know, more grandiose than that. But I started writing and I really enjoyed it. And uh, I thought one day I'd been on the bar about a year and a half. I think it was about 1977 at that point. And I thought there's songwriters you know, songwriter nights, they were becoming very, very popular and very strong. But what about people who are performers? They don't write their own songs, but they're terrific talents, you know? They should have an opportunity too. So I went to the local FM radio station, WKDF, and I got their lead uh, uh, air personality DJ Mm -hmm. to uh, host it. And so we started doing performers nights. And then one day I went to the management of the club and I said, hey, I'm a bartender, but I have an idea. What if I could be the publicity PR director for the Exit Inn? You've never had one before. So when these acts come into town, I'll take them to the radio stations and I'll do their, you know, I'll get them to the newspapers. I'll line everything up. Well, of course, the first acts coming in, 
it just so happened they were they were um, like Bobby Blue Bland and you know BB King and people and I'm I'm going to these stations that I've never heard of and I don't know where I'm going but but it worked out they said if you can get the club in the black you know with the publicity keep the audiences full uh, for three months we'll make you the PR director and um, I was on track for that, but then one day a girl who was at CBS Records said to me, hey, there's going to be an opening at Billboard magazine for a reporter. Uh, The other reporter's leaving, and there's going to be an opening. And I said, well, how can I do that? I'm only a bartender. She said, well, you've done some writing. She said, I'll get you an interview. I was the last one, Keach, to be really? interviewed. Right? He was having people, Jerry Wood was having people coming in uh, from, you know, like the Dallas Morning News and the Atlanta Constitution Journal or whatever. <laughs> you know, and, and then at the very end of all of the days of interviewing, here I come. And I'll never forget the editor, you know, was leaned back on the desk. This is Billboard magazine, right. the number one. Were they one. in Nashville at yes, that time? Yes, at like that the, time the, they had the office. an office. And it was a very powerful office. Yeah. It was probably one of the top three positions in the music industry in Nashville. Wow. Head of ASCAP, head of, you know, BMI. Right, of course. Um, and, and, and Billboard, And, and yeah. Billboard. Because at know. that time... Well, everything was, was about radio everything like yeah. if you wanted a hit song and you wanted to sell records you had to have a presence at radio yeah definitely well there was cashbox record world and then there was billboard so i go in and i thought i've got nothing to lose and i sold myself and i remember telling the editor he said why should i hire you and i said uh because if you hire me i'm coming from the street i i've been down there i've watched these bands bands that nobody's heard of and they're the opening acts and they come in and i've watched them set up and i've listened to their sound checks and i've asked them you know how how do you work with the audience cuz you're not the headliners how are you going to keep them entertained before you know um, whoever it is rick nelson comes out on stage uh, and i said so i come at it from a different point of view i understand you know and i was yeah. selling myself so finally he says well, let me see your uh, resume. Let me see your um, articles. So I take out about six little articles and I give it to him. I'm thinking this is going nowhere. Um, so he thanked me for my time. And about a week later, he called and invited me to lunch at TGI Fridays, oh. which was right across the corner from the exit in. And uh, I realized about partway through our lunch that he had stopped saying, if I were to hire you, yeah. if you come to Billboard, it became when. And finally, I couldn't stand it any longer. And I said, did I get the job? <laughs> Whoa. Within two years after that, wow. he was promoted to editor-in-chief in New York. Uh, they made me country editor and a year later, Nashville bureau chief. Wow. And an interesting thing, a year after I started as reporter, they wanted to move me to L.A., which was the headquarters then. Yeah. And I went out for a week and I worked in the L.A. office. Everything was you know, big out there then. But it was a radio, it was in the radio department, it was all charts and numbers, and that's not me. And it was the toughest thing I've ever done. But I said to them, I'm not gonna take this job. I, it's, a la- it's a great lateral promotion, but I'd rather stay in Nashville. I wanna be in the talent department. Well, we have the talent person, we don't need you for that. But they told me, you're turning down a job in LA, this is the headquarters, you're gonna regret this. Had I taken the job within six months later is when they moved my boss to New York, moved L.A.'s, you know, status up to New York. They still had an office. But they weren't the headquarters. And they laid off the last three people hired. I would have been without a job in Los wow. Angeles instead wow. of ending up Nashville Bureau Chief for Billboard. That's serendipity right there. It is. And, well, more than that, because, I mean, you, you sensed there was a, something about it. You just, it wasn't you. Yeah. Like, 
It was it was just didn't you didn't have yeah. that vibe. Well, about it. I've always known who I am, and I think that's very important for artists as well. Yeah. If we don't know who we are, how on earth can we convince anybody else or believe in ourselves when it gets tough? Yeah. Now, was it you that I was talking to somebody years ago, and they said that um, I don't know if it was you or not, but they said that Alan Jackson only gets he only gives out two interviews a year, and was it you said that and I got both of them. And, and it was like, because you know, they were working for some magazine and they were also working for some radio station too. Maybe that wasn't you, but but I thought that was very interesting. But you did meet Alan Jackson in the very beginning. I did and Alan Jackson's very first, first ever TV interview. No, it's not. Well, awesome? Clive Davis had opened Eros to Nashville and it was a big deal. You know, we were all very excited. Yeah. And uh, they had. Early an in- 90s, right? Yeah. 89, mm-hmm. 90. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they had an independent publicist who came by and, you know, he was trying to convince me that I should, should do this interview. Um, for Crook and Chase. It was yeah, going to be a TV right. interview. So I got the okay to do it, and I'm thinking, you know, Clive Davis, that's a big deal, and this is the first act. The record on the air, Alan's first single, was Blue-Blooded Woman, Redneck Man. So I get my crew. We go over to the Ariston Nashville office. Alan's sitting down. I look at it, and I tell the crew kind of what I'm envisioning to set up. And I walk over to Alan, and I said, Hi, I'm Kip Kirby with Crook and Chase. And he starts to stand up. And he kept standing up, <laughs> like watching a giraffe unfold. Because what people don't realize, Alan is two thirds legs. Yeah. He's only a third body, and the rest is all legs. <laughs> and, and you're you are vertically challenged, is what would that be? Uh, yeah. You're very petite. Very yeah, small. well, five feet three and a half. <laughs> um, so after we did the interview, which was his first TV interview, we were packing up, and his wife Denise was still working for an airline, and she was saying, you know, I just hope it happens because he was in the mailroom at Opryland and all, and. And I, you know, purveyor of wisdom, say to her, well, don't worry, you know, nothing may happen for the first few records because it takes time, but hopefully they'll give him a second album if the second single was here in the real world. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> wow. never look back. See, you you just, you made it happen. Love it. <laughs> you, you, uh, you imparted some positive uh, vibes into the, the room, and it just happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... You were with Crook and Chase. For, how long were you with Crook and Chase? Interestingly, my mark seems to be, or my, my limit seems to be about seven and a half years seven for jobs. Years. I was with Billboard seven and a half. I was getting burned out. It yeah. was the best job ever. But I was doing, so, I mean, I was doing reviews. We had page one stories. Um, we were we were covering all phases of the music industry, not just country music. Yeah. And then Nashville kind of went over into the doldrums. L.A. had already been there. Nashville, yeah. everything got flat. They weren't signing artists. And, you know, it just wasn't exciting anymore. And I had an opportunity. Um, I'd heard about Crook and Chase. Uh, they were already on TNN with a show called This Week in Country Music. Yeah. And so I went over to be interviewed. People may not realize it is a completely different ball game writing for TV. With print, you have to describe everything you have to put the pictures and and the sound everything into words on a printed flat page with tv you have to get out of the way it's the footage it's the artist speaking in his own voice telling the story so you have to write voiceovers and setups that lead into you have to know how to ask the questions to bring the artist out so that you can shoot footage to go with it did you did, did they explain that to you, and did you have to figure that out for yourself? Uh, well, <laughs> I didn't realize how different it was going to be. Um, I was freelancing for them for almost 
about nine months. And, you know, the first interview I did, I'd been over, I'd met with Lorianne and, and uh, Charlie Chase, and she said, well, we'll, we'll call. They had two, two reporters, and they were going to add this third one. So she said, you know, we'll, we'll think about it. About a week later, I, later, I get a call. Uh, there was a movie... Uh, that had been made called American Anthem, and it was Mitch Gaylord, who was an Olympic gold medalist, mm-hmm. and Janet, I think Jones, I can't remember, uh, and they were in Nashville to promote the movie, and Lorianne got sick, and so they said, would you go over and do the interview? Sure, I'll be glad to. <laughs> well, when we got through, my cameraman hands me this big plastic box, and he said, here's the three-quarter inch tape, go back and shot sheet it, and I said, what's shot sheet what is that what's a three-quarter inch tape (laughs) because what we did back then we actually wrote the whole thing out we'd sit down look at the whole interview pick the time codes figure out the bites cut where we wanted do everything except physically run the editing equipment so basically what the editors did was simply follow our script so I had to learn how to so do that. So you don't that. know what you're going to write until you see the interview, until you get the ideas and the bites and things like yeah. that, and then you write for that. Well, one of the most important things, uh, and I had a great videographer, tremendous guy. He taught me so much. What he told me was, Kip, you have to know the story before you go in. Well, how can I do that? I don't know what's going to happen. He said, you've got to know what you want to say. Lead the artist's interview if you can that way, but if something comes up, we can always add footage. We can always, you know, find things to shoot. So you should know like a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I remember one of my favorite pieces was, um, it was an artist that was not recording at the time. And they kept pushing and saying, you know, we want to do something. We want to have a story. And so I went out to his farm. And the opening shot was a long shot of he and I walking along, and he was just talking, and you could hear it as a voiceover. He was saying, you know, when I'm not on the road and I'm not doing all of the music industry stuff, this is where I, I find peace and quiet. This is how I can write my songs. And then, you know, we cut to the interview and some concert footage. Peace ended with a long shot from the back wow. of us walking over the walking hill and away. him saying, this is where it all happens wow. for me. So you have to think and envision the whole story. If you go out there with no concept, you may come back with nothing. Yeah, that's right. Wow, that's amazing. And um, so I imagine the years that you were with Crook and Chase was almost like going to college. I mean, you you probably learned a lot. I mean, not only from what you'd bringing your expertise that what you'd learned before in print, but also learning experience and video It was it was very interesting because not everyone knows how to be interviewed. and some were naturals. I had to, I had the unenviable uh, task of interviewing an unknown John Bon Jovi at 9 a.m. on the morning of the first Farm Aid. Nobody knew who he 1985, was. 1985. Yeah, five, probably. And six. you know, nobody knew who he was, yeah, and nobody right. cared. But John Bon Jovi didn't. He he was okay with it because he was talking to a TV camera. Wow. And Crook and Chase was national. We were like Entertainment Tonight, even though we were out of Nashville. I did interviews with, um, well, I think I interviewed Tom Hanks and Bruce Willis for different movie projects about five times. Uh, they'd always say, oh, yeah, that Cops and Robbers show out of Nashville. But <laughs> I would I would walk in and I'd say Crook and Chase and they'd go, oh, yeah, that's that show with the two hosts. You guys are out of yeah. Nashville. You know, but we'd be in Los Angeles. We'd be, um, and I, re- I loved that because I always said we're as good as, even if we're from Nashville, we're, because Nashville at that time was still, 
today it's the it city still back then it was always the wannabe yeah. you know it was that little town trying to get yeah. somewhere <laughs> right trying to be like los angeles and new york or something yes, like that yeah. exactly wow um so the seven and a half years with crook and chase and then something happened in that like you said that you started thinking about a, a school that you could teach media training well, I would get coaching, frustrated, sorry. Keach. I'd get so frustrated when I go. Uh, I felt so bad for the artists, and, and I'm going to now call them Hollywood actors. When we would go to Hollywood or New York or, you know, I did uh, Pure Country, George Strait's um, first movie uh, down in Texas. But when I would do the junkets, I would realize they're bringing in press from all over the world. These people are sitting there clipped to a microphone in a chair. Every 10 minutes, a new one of us comes. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's Katie Couric or Kip Kirby or somebody from a little local TV station in the Midwest. We're likely going to have the same questions because we're writing to the film clips. We're Mm -hmm. writing to the movie. And, and, And they're getting exhausted. They're worn out. And we also could go in the control room, you know, Warner Brothers and and um, Paramount and all that. You could sit there if you wanted for a little bit and see what they were saying to get ideas. Yeah. The ones that were the best were the ones that could make it different for each interview, but yeah. still say the same, get to the same point. The ones who were losing it were the ones who were just, they didn't know. And I thought they should be better prepared. They should, they should have, you know. And then I remember there were times where it was an election year and someone asked them, who are you going to vote for? Or there was some big scandal in the news and they were put on the spot and they go, well, I, 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 I don't know. Or, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't comment on that. Um, so it had been building up for a while. I would come home in frustration and say, if only there were a way to, to, to help these people understand what we're looking for. It shouldn't be adversarial. And I think what crystallized it, um, there was a duo on RCA. It was uh, Jamie O'Hara and Kieran Kane. They eventually broke up and uh, Jamie O'Hara had his own deal. So he was shooting his first music video. I go over with Crook and Chase, you know, and I'd interviewed them together. I, I knew them both. Jamie and I were friends. But when the cameras started rolling and I asked Jamie the first question, which was probably something like, Jamie, this must be so exciting for you. You know, you've been part of a duo for a long time. Now you've got your own solo shot. How does it feel at this very moment to be about to step in front of the cameras for your first single on RCA? And he just froze. And he looked at me. And he said, could we stop the cameras? And I said, sure. And so we stopped for a minute. We started and tried again, stopped again. And he looked at me and he said, I am so, so sorry, Kip. He said, I guess I need media training. And in that moment, I literally had an out-of-body experience where over my head in a big bubble cloud, I saw media coaching. Because to me, it was always coaching. I never, ever, ever will call it school. I, will, I don't even like the phrase media training, training because to me, I'm like the coach that says, hey, you're the team. You guys are great. Yeah. Can you go out on the field and make it happen? My job is to set you up for success so that you go out there with all the confidence to tell yeah. your story. So training is for, is for a dog. 
coaching is for people. Yes. Is that kind of the way you looked at it? Uh, Yes, as a matter of fact, because, (laughs) funny you would say that, because in the last uh, career years here in my life, I have been a professional dog trainer. And And I have never said dog coach. (laughs) You're not a dog coach. (laughs) No. No. So never let the two, they're they're totally different Never the twain shall meet. Right. Yeah. Well, um so uh, so we'll, we'll shift gears now into the second half of the podcast, which I want to talk about the, the meat and potatoes of media training and what we can pass along to some of our younger people that maybe have a, a presence online, maybe they have a YouTube channel, or they, they um, maybe need to learn some things about how to, like the things that we learned when, with Lone Star, you know, how to bridge the gap, how to... Um, how to conduct an interview, how to create a soundbite, how to uh, make people excited about not just your record, but who you are. Because I figure like people aren't buying a record, they're buying you, right? Yes. And so how do you, how do you come across as so interesting that people are like, I don't care what kind of music they make, I just want to buy their album. Yes. I, I developed some techniques, and you mentioned a couple of them. You said bridging the gap, yeah. the pebble technique. Um, uh, Beginning, uh, middle, and an end, that yes, kind of thing? But yes, uh, I had the three Cs, the five Es, you know, things okay. that I, I just, was these days that's what sells everything, sells yeah. magazines, okay. and, you know, I'll buy a magazine that says 10 ways to clean your closets, you know, even oh, though it's wow. the same 10 ways or, yeah. or five ways to organize your kitchen, you know. Okay. And it's nothing new, but it's just yeah. a revamp, and, and it works. So. so what are the three Cs? The three Cs. The three Cs are contribute plus creativity equals control. So what that means is the first thing you have to do is if you don't know why you're there, they sure can't know. So you've got to create for yourself. What are the points that you that you think are important. The interviewer may not have read your bio. He may be a replacement for the person that was supposed to interview you, but that guy got sick and this person's here so and knows nothing. that's the contribute nothing. part, right? Uh, that's, well, actually, creating and then, yes, being able to sit down in the interview. You ask me a question, it's not relevant to me. So very politely, I'll say, well, that's a good question, Keach. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, um, yes, that's true, but what I think is even more important or um, and over time I've discovered that what really makes the difference so you're taking it where you want not answering specifically the question yeah. or being able to contribute because nobody knows us as well as we do yeah. so even the best interviewer in the world is not going to be able to come up with questions as good as the ones you could probably do for yourself I remember I was interviewing Barbara Streisand for uh, Prince of Tides and she was the director and she was in it with Nick Nolte And my big thing as an interviewer was always, what can I get that's different from, you know, what anybody else is going to get? Yeah, I always wanted one question in the interview where I could actually get that star to go, wow, that excites them. Really good question. Yeah, yeah. So they gave me the, you know, like the the getting close to the end thing, and I'd already talked about the movie. I said, Barbara, let me ask you, not believing I'm saying Barbara to Barbara Streisand, let me ask you one more question. Can you ever, I've read you're very, very critical of yourself, are you ever able to sit in the audience and watch one of your movies or listen to one of your albums like we do? Can you ever just sit there and enjoy it or are you always second guessing yourself and you can tell when it's real and when it isn't she went wow she said I don't think I've been asked that before (laughs) she thought for a moment and then she gave me the answer and the answer was no she couldn't 
Wow. By the way. So, um, so again. Did you, how long did it take you to come up with that question? Did it do it on the spot or did you I worked kind of very prepare? hard on my questions. Oh, I see. You thought about it for Oh, a while. very, yeah. very hard. Yeah. So, oh, um, yeah, the three C's are contribute, creative, cre- creativity, and control because interviewers cannot yeah. ask you anything that you haven't already thought about. And if you haven't thought about it, you need to ahead of time. Yeah. What are your goals in the interview? And if the interviewer is prepared, great. If he isn't, doesn't matter. You've yeah. got it covered. Um, another one I call the five E's. And these are very important for interviews or for media. Effort, energy, expression, eye contact, and most of all, enthusiasm. All right. Because there is that that is missing from a lot of people Very who flat. have to do so many interviews in a row, yes, and that kind of thing. And how so do you make it fresh? One way I tried to to help artists with that, I, I said, picture a wheel. In the middle of the wheel, there's spokes, and they go into the center hub. So in the hub is your answer. It's it's you know uh, so. Um, uh, you know, why do you play the drums? You know, what 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 do you what is it about playing the drums that gives you something nothing else does? But there might be five different ways to get to it. You know, Kip, it's interesting. I remember the very first time I started playing drums, and that's over here. Um, another way that's to it's a spoke. That's a different spoke. It's a spoke. Right? Yeah. So there's all kinds of ways to get into the answer. Yeah. The answer ultimately is going to be the same, but how you get into yeah. it is will keep it fun for you and make each part of it fresh. That's true, because I've heard uh, interviews on YouTube and things like that from, I'm I'm a big video and film guy, you know, Mm -hmm. so all the, like, George Lucas and, uh, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg, stuff like that, they'll answer the same questions in a different way all the time. Yes. And I always enjoy that. Yeah, and it's important to be able to do that, because otherwise, if you keep saying the same thing over and over, you're going to burn out mentally. Yeah. And also, uh, when these things air around the country, it's going to be the same information over and over, almost verbatim. So, so after, after seeing technique. that, I try to do the same thing when people ask me questions. I try to sort of reword it a little bit or uh-huh. kind of look from a different perspective, like a different spoke in the wheel. Yeah, right, I totally exactly. Get that. Well, the pebble technique that you I was going to ask you about that. The yeah. Pebble, that sounds you interesting. You know, I even use it. And I remember an inkling in my brain is saying pebble technique. I remember her talking about that when we did our media training like almost 30 years ago. Well, there was an artist. Uh, on, I think it was either Epic or so, and his name was Ricky, and I can't think of his last name. It was not Ricky Lee Shelton. Um, Ricky Van Shelton. Ricky Van Shelton. Yeah, I can't think of his name. Ricky, uh, he, you know, he had a fairly short career, but he was just signed. He was from Texas, and so we were doing the media coaching thing, and he was just struggling. He would ramble. This is one of the biggest problems. We start to answer a question, and all of a sudden, we interrupt ourselves, and we go sideways, and we keep going sideways. Now we don't know where we are. We forgot the question. We don't. I'm sorry. I don't remember the question, Keach. So I thought he was just having so much problem. And I remember one day, I'm very, very good at visuals and finding another. I use the circle technique myself. I said to him, Ricky, you're, you're from Texas, right? And he said, yeah. And all of a sudden, I saw it. I said, did you ever skip pebbles across a river? He said, yeah, all the time. Keach, I'm from New York. I don't skip pebbles. I can't even do it. But I know how it's supposed to look. So I said to Ricky, isn't it where you take a pebble and you kind of throw it just right so it's not too hard and it touches the water and the momentum carries it forward. It touches again. It goes forward, touches one more time and probably ends up on the other bank. He said, yeah. He said, I love doing that. I said, okay, that's the pebble technique. I said, in an interview, you take the question that's asked, 
Think about what you want to say about it. If there's three elements, you're going on tour, what's so exciting about your tour? Maybe it's, you know, you're the opening act for Brooks and Dunn, um, you're going to get to play three singles, and, uh, you know, you're also going to play in parts of the United States you've never been to and win fans. So instead of going sideways, each time you answer, keep it fairly short, skip the pebble, mentally visualize the pebble skipping on the water. Oh, I'm so excited about this tour. I can't believe I'm opening for Brooks and Dunn. They are incredible. Uh, but you know what's amazing for me is that in my opening set, even though it's only, you know, 30 minutes, I'm gonna get to do three of my favorite songs on this record. The first one is my single, and you name it. And also, we're going to be playing in, and you talk about being able to see fans in all these other parts of the country. So then, now the pebble's almost to the other yes, side now. And, yeah. ha- and, 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 and every artist would say to me, well, how do I know when I've gotten to the other side? When you can take the question and wrap it around at the end. So that's why yeah. I'm so excited to be going on tour right. right now. You know, another thing that you taught us that we – use all the time and i use it when i interviewing people if i'm doing video work or something is incorporating the question into the answer because people don't do that they don't know to do that if you say so what's so exciting about being out on tour and they answer the food is really great i mean or the crowds are really exciting well if you if you edit that into an interview they're not going to know what that is you know so you have to the editor has to kind of say we asked so and so what they thought about but if you incorporate the question into the answer you know the greatest thing about being on tour besides the food is the fact that we get to play our hits in front of all these fans and mean something to them you you could be a media coach see what i mean yeah it's because you trained me to do that and i remember it well i i came at it firsthand i was not the first media trainer <laughs> media coach, coach yeah. uh, and there was somebody when I started that had been doing it for quite a while but I felt that I had the inside track because I had done print I had done radio I had done television I had been with artists you know in in the trenches I knew a lot of them before they became famous and so I thought you know I'm not doing it as a school. I'm not doing it. I can tell people who've had media training. Uh, yeah. I can tell right you away. You can spot it right away. Yeah, because there's a formula to their answers. Or they'll say, I'm sorry, I really can't comment on that. Oh, yeah, you can. There's always a way to yeah. comment. It's just, how are you going to do it with a way that makes you comfortable? Absolutely, yeah. Now, one of the things you taught us also was, as a group, um, and you showed us an example, and I'm not going to say who the, who the group was with the female singer, but not to throw inside jokes around, you know, because the audience, they don't know what you're talking about. They uh-huh. don't know what you're laughing about, what they you're giggling about. They want to be included. About. Yeah. You know? They don't want to be on the outside of an inside joke. Uh-huh. Right? And I think that's what you taught us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm not sure who that band is either right now. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not remembering which one it might have been. But um, right now, media has changed so much. Yeah. Uh, people, The interviewers talk over you. Um, sound bites are important. Can you say it in 
25 seconds or less, and that's very, very diff difficult. Um, these are things that have to be practiced. You can't just go on a red carpet and they go, how does it feel to be here for your first Grammy nomination? Oh, it feels great. Pretty good. Yeah. If you say, <laughs> you know, since I was a kid, I've watched the Grammys. I never dreamed that I would be standing on the red carpet with a chance to go in there and end up holding that statuette in my hands. I hope it happens for me tonight. You know, that's a soundbite. That's a soundbite. Yes. yes, exactly. Exactly. It's uh, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. Right there. And, and it's hard. I mean, and, and nowadays so much is being asked of people in their interviews. But I don't know. Uh, back when interviews were longer and people took time to be thoughtful, you could talk longer. But now it's even harder because somebody throws a microphone at you. Also, with politics and things going on in the country, a lot of things are no longer off limits that might have been. Yeah. So, you know, an artist can be shocked or surprised suddenly by a question that he has no idea or she has no idea is coming up. And, and that can cause you to freeze. So I would say, you know, keeping up with news, figuring out what you're comfortable saying. Um, as we talk right now, of course, there's been a little bit of a yeah, right. thing in the in the news with um, a country artist, and uh, it's just interesting how headlines get formed. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to share one of the things that you taught us that I remember probably the most. I don't know why this pops up in my head more from the media training. I, mean, I just remember all that stuff. It really I can't stuck believe with me. you do. So That's many years great. ago, you're going to remember this too. Okay. You sh what you did is you had a bunch of clips of bad examples of of people what not to do in interviews and I stuff remember like that. you had them all queued up on your on your vcr that's how long ago it was <laughs> your vcr tape and one of them was Ann crook was interviewing some an artist and they said they walked out on the show and they said hey guys how's it going and Ann says blah 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 artists i'm not going to say their name I, uh -huh. I don't even remember who it was actually um, let's say it's, uh, you know, uh, Jim Smith, you know, Jim Smith, it's so good to have you on the show. Um, and then Jim Smith, the, let's say quotation marks, Jim Smith said, you know, Lorianne, that's so great. Cause I got this new album out and I got, and I just can't, I can't wait to, to, to have everybody hear it. And the look on Lorianne's face was just like, and I remember you saying he could have just slapped her in the face right then because her, the look on her face was like, what are you doing? You know, like, uh, and, and your comment was, don't do that. Don't go out there and try and sell something right away that you'll get around to it. The art, the, the interviewer, they know you're there to talk about your record. You don't mm -hmm. have to shove it in their face. And yes. To be a little bit more subtle about it. One of the most difficult situations I ever faced uh, involved Randy Travis. Randy Travis was married to Lib Hatcher, his longtime manager. Mm -hmm. um, over the years, there were some rumors. And uh, the National Enquirer had done a story. This was in the um, mid-late mid period. Um, I think it was probably about 95, 1995, um, about was he really married or was he of another persuasion? I remember that. So Lorianne says, you've got to get Randy to talk about it. I said, I can't. His manager has already told me that is off limits, and of course I wouldn't bring that up. You know, I, I'm not there for that. I was there because it was going to be a number one party. He and Alan Jackson had a, a number one single uh, 
I can't remember the name of it. It wasn't Old Friends. But anyway, she said, no, I mean it. You better come back with something about that. Here I am now with, uh, you know, what am I going to do? about pressure. <laughs> yeah. I get there, and the manager says, Kip, I trust you. I know you have integrity. Because it's you, I'm not going to stay in the room the way I would with anybody else. She leaves. So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? So we get through the interview pretty much, and then I looked at him. And I thought, well, I'll give him a perfect out where I, I meet Lorianne's needs, but he isn't going to go for it. And I said, you know, in the song, it talks about ups and downs and a lot of life's tribulations and different things. And I said, you know, in your own life <laughs> recently, things have uh, not been very easy for you, have they? Never expecting. He caught fire. He said to me, if I had a gun, I would have gone down to the National Enquirer office and I would have shot all of them. How dare they write those? He went right through the door and then some. I'm sitting there with a (laughs) horror look on my face, wondering if I should tell the crew to turn off, but I'm not worried about it because we're not going to use it. I go back to the studio and Lorianne sees the tapes. She said, did you get him to talk about it? I said, well, I told, you know, his manager that we we will not use it, of course. He did talk about it. It was totally inappropriate what he said. She called the manager. She said, yeah, we are going to use it. Um, I was banned from interviewing him. The manager said, you're never going to interview Randy again. He should never. He could have told, all he had to say, yeah, things do heat up a lot sometimes, but you know, in the end, what matters is your career. I had a similar situation with a completely different person, Kiefer Sutherland, the actor. Uh, Back years ago, I uh, I was doing a movie junket, and he literally, Julia Roberts and he were engaged to be married three days before the ceremony. She runs off to Ireland with a guy and and breaks up with him, obviously. So we go in, and obviously the studio says, don't you dare mention anything about Julia Roberts. So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, well, so... I go in, and I've never met Kiefer. Kiefer. I like him a lot. We're interviewing. And then I said, you know, Kiefer, I said, uh, your dad was uh, obviously a wonderful actor and all, and so many things you've learned. And I said, um, sometimes it can't be easy being in the public eye. I said, how do you handle it? I said, because in the movie, your character, blah, 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 but in your own life right now, unfortunately, your name is in the headlines everywhere you go. And he looked at me, and I knew on that very precise second, uh, my life on the planet was very shaky. He looked at me, and I will never forget this, and the gratitude I felt. He said, he knew exactly what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So he said, you know, Kip, you're right. He said, it's not easy. He said, "Um, my dad, Donald Sutherland, you know, has had a wonderful career. He said, I'm coming up. I want to be respected. Everybody has been great. He said, recently I seem to be tabloid fodder, and every time I turn around I see myself on, on, you know, shows and everybody's talking about an event in my life. He said, but you know what's really important to me? He said, everybody has always treated me with respect. They have judged me on my work and my acting. And I hope that now that this movie is coming out, and he took it right back around to the movie, he didn't stand up, unplug his mic, and walk out the door. He didn't say, I'm sorry, you're not supposed to ask those questions. He handled it he beautifully. Bridged he, he bridged totally the gap. He bridged the gap. turned it into, yes. said what he wanted to say, what he was there to do. Yeah. Exactly. That's great. Yeah, and Keeper that's Sutherland, what, yeah. you rock, man. Oh, man, totally. totally. Do you think he was media trained? 
Or, or is it just him, you know, no. the life with his dad and the life no, with his family? No, I, I don't. Another interview, this is not really media coaching exactly, but it shows the kindness that people can have for the media. I flew to London to interview Michael Caine for a Sherlock Holmes movie. So late in the day, I was one of the last interviews, and I'm serious. He'd probably had 63 before me. Oh Plus, I'd never met him. I walk in the room, you know, it's Michael Caine, right? And yeah. I said, hello. It's very nice to meet you. I'm Kip Kirby with Crook and Chase. We're a show out of Nashville, but we're national. And I said, I feel awful because I said, it's the end of the day, and you've been doing this all day long. And I said, and I'm sure I've worked so hard on my questions, but I'm sure they're going to end up being just like everybody else's. <laughs> and I'm standing there almost in tears, and I will never let forget the look of kindness that swept over his face. And he said, my dear, he said, you may be almost the last one but we're going to make your interview the very best one of all don't you worry about a thing wow and we sat down and he gave it like it was the first interview of the day wow it's kind of That's freshened class. him up a little bit like he thought this is the yeah. last one i'm going to make it fun and then yeah. i'm out of here but yeah that was so great yeah you just have a way of of getting that from people you know making it making people want to talk to you I love communication, and, and I find these days, Keach, that what I don't see a lot of is a back-and-forth questions. You know, you might say, well, I had the best summer. I, I got to go up to Michigan, and I, I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. It was the best thing ever. It exceeded my expectations. There were some exhibits there that blew my mind, and then I got to go to Mackinac Island, and I toured Fort Mackinac, and, and the person you're talking to, and it could be a good friend, they go, that's nice. Where do you go with that? Yeah, right. There's nowhere. I hope people listening to this, whether you know, you're a drummer or somebody just coming into the industry, don't forget there are two people here involved in the interview process. Don't forget occasionally to ask your interviewer ahead of time. So, you know, I, if you've read their stuff, if you've watched them, you know, I'm a big fan of your work. Um, it must be a lot of, you know, the hard work, but what an incredible journey you've had. Or if you know, for instance, that they're new to the job. Wow, how exciting. I, I hear you've only been a reporter for to the newspaper for a few weeks. That's great. I can't wait to sit down and, you know, see what the questions are going to be. Show a little interest back it's not always about you yeah does that make yeah. sense it does yeah that's true yeah. Very true yeah the thing about interviews is it should be it should be visual and it also should be exciting it should be it shouldn't be boring and dull um, I love Dwight Yoakam's music not my favorite interview because he's a very, very intelligent guy, you know, and he's way up here in the stratosphere when he does interviews, you know. Make it real. What does it feel like? It is such a great way to express it. You know, even looking at you right now, I want to ask you things like, Keach, you know, I'm never going to know what it feels like to be on stage like that. You know, what kind of a feeling is it? Or, yeah. You know, it, all of those things. I always wanted to be you, but I can't be. So I write hoping that what I 
take of yours I can create for the people who yeah. need to you know like about it. You like to open it. the shade of the window into their world for just a second. Yeah, people exactly. Go, that's what it's like to be me for me. Yeah, and I think the interview process, honestly, it's changed a lot. I loved it when I got to do it. I thought it was a great way for people to get to know artists, you know, questions and answers. Um, I never had hidden agendas, but I might have hip pocket questions. Um, sometimes I wouldn't tell artists ahead of time, or I might say, Christmas is coming, I'm, I'm going to ask you, what was your favorite Christmas gift, and what was your favorite, you know, you know, go-to church. questions. Yeah, what, what are your go-to <laughs> questions? Uh, but I was never about springing unexpected questions yeah. on somebody because I felt that was unfair. By the same token, I really want you to be able to talk about your music. And it's hard because when you go into the studio, you know, whether you're a singer or a songwriter or you know, a drummer, you still have things you do to make it happen. And how do you talk about it? It might be harder as a drummer. Honestly, is it? If, if you're not using lyrics, we can't talk about lyrics of a song. So if I said to you, you're, you're drumming, you know, for all the drummers who are listening right now going, well, how can I talk about it? I, I go and I do this thing. If I said to you, what is it about drumming, Keach, that you love so much? What would you tell me? I would tell you that it's a release of energy that I live for every day, whether I'm practicing or in front of people or just uh, playing a, a little acoustic performance, my energy and what I do, and this is the best thing. It's like breathing for me, and this is like my art, and this is how I release my joy into the world. Wow. <laughs> I love I'm that. Thinking. Here's something you don't know. Okay. I have always wanted, in my next life, I'm coming back as a rock and roll drummer. Oh, I saw Nigel Olson playing with Elton John back probably in the 70s, and he wore headphones on stage, yeah. uh, and he had a riser. And I went, whoa, that's what I want to do for a living. I, I can't play. I have no musical ability, but I so much want to be a rock and roll drummer or a country drummer. Yeah. Which nowadays, you know, rock and roll drummers, country drummers, they're all kind of like, they're, we're all kind of rock drummers. In a way. Wow. <laughs> oh, I just think that's incredible. Is there anything that um, I can say for the people that might be listening, uh, any other ideas or questions that they might benefit from? Well, just um, if you do get a chance to maybe look up something on the internet about media training, media coaching, or how to, uh, how to uh, conduct an interview or how to... Uh, you know, smooth, make an interview smoother, do it, learn it, you know, and because I think it makes you as an artist or as a speaker or as a person that's on YouTube channel or whatever you got going. um, I think that media coaching definitely, I mean, I think you would agree. Mm -hmm. It just makes people stick around more. It makes people listen. It's like a magnet to, to what you're doing, you know, instead of them just switching the channel and being bored or whatever. Well said. Seriously, I think you should start media training (laughs) on the side. Well, I learned from the best. Media coaching. Aw, thank (laughs) you. Well, Kip, it's been so good talking to you, and um, I wish you – I know you're visiting Nashville right now. You're you're – coming from out of town but um well i know so this seems funny but i've been a professional dog trainer for years and i read dogs very well they don't communicate that way but it's another kind of communication right yeah people say do you prefer dogs or people i refuse to answer <laughs> right you bridge the gap on that one <laughs> well thank you so much we'll see you guys next time this has been keach rainwater and kip kirby on designated drummer see you guys bye bye